Good morning. Welcome to Awaken Church. My name is Stephen. Hi, Gisela. I am uh, one of the deacons here. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. This is actually my, uh, it's my first time preaching up here, which I'm really excited about. I, uh, I really appreciate that we uh, go to a church, that we're part of a family here that uh, not only has a plurality of leaders, that not only has uh, uh, four pastors, um, but that there's actually an environment that hopes to, to raise up and strengthen skills and, and uh, give other people opportunities to, uh, to practice things. And so I really appreciate being given the opportunity. Um, they say that the best way to learn something is to teach it, and I've definitely found that to be true uh, in going through Ephesians. I've loved going through Ephesians with everybody here as a part of the church, and I also, uh, I've loved actually, uh, I've loved being able to camp on Ephesians 6 in preparation for this. I feel like I've been able to um, look at it through a lens that I've, I've not been able to look at it through um, so really quickly, if this is your first time at Awaken, congratulations, we're actually ending the series in Ephesians today, so good timing. Um, we, uh, so far we've had Frank, we've had Andrew, we've had Vashi, we've had Richard go through Ephesians 1 through 5, and then uh, they asked me to help close it out, so no pressure, but that's a uh, tough act to follow. So first, I, uh, I want to give you a really quick overview of where we're going, and then um, I want to um, I just jump in really quickly. We're going to do a quick recap. Um, can we put up the next slide? So first, I'm going to give you a quick overview of where we're going. So first, uh, just a really quick overview, and then um, I really want to share the gospel with you. And I know that's a strange thing to say to a room full of Christians that we want to start with the gospel, but um, I, uh, I think that everything in Ephesians and everything throughout, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, it's only understood in the context of the gospel. And so I want to start with that as a foundation. Actually, I want to share it in a, in a spatial sense. So there's a lot of research that has been shown that our brains are wired to understand things spatially rather than just conceptually. And what that means is that if you and I had a conversation a year ago, you may only remember one or two details of that conversation because it's an idea, right? But if you came over to my house a year ago, you could mentally walk through the pattern of my house. You know where the kitchen is. You know where the bathroom is. You know where the rooms are. Uh, it's because our brains are wired to understand things spatially. Uh, rather just conceptually. So I want to kind of talk through the, the gospel spatially, do a quick recap, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians. And like, like um, Scott said, we're going to talk through children and parents, slaves and masters, and then the armor of God. And then we'll wrap. You ready? Yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, I'm just going to kind of take up some room on this stage. This is, uh, this is going to represent the impenetrable barrier of sin. Okay? So, um, so this is us before Christ. So we're over here. We are completely separated. God is all the way over there. He is on the other side of this room. I can't get to him. There's nothing I can do. I can't be good enough. I can't be strong enough. I can't be charismatic enough. I can't be talented enough to get past this. Um, if, this is, uh, if we're talking about life and death, this is the grave. If we're talking about freedom, this is a prison, right? We're stuck here. There's nothing we can do to get to the other side. Jesus. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, comes into the prison cell. He comes into this place, and he says, I will lay down my life for you. And he says, I'm fully man, so I'm able to lay down my life, but I'm fully God, and so I'm able to pick it up again. And that laying down and picking up broke something inside this impenetrable barrier of sin. He said, so, so now there is a Christ-shaped hole in this barrier that we can now see God through. We can now, we can now start accessing God. So the gospel is summarized as this. Return to God, because now you can. There's nothing standing between you and God anymore. So Christ says, you know, busted through here. There's a long road. God's over here. And faith is this process of stepping past this previously impenetrable barrier of sin and saying, 
I trust that everything he did, the work that he did, is sufficient. I'm allowed to come out in freedom because of what he's already done. So now I'm on this side, right? I'm standing on a road called forgiveness. The place where I am is called forgiveness, right? So no matter where I go on this road, I am already beyond this barrier. I'm already in a state of forgiveness. Um, And so once you get outside, you look around, you realize that the sun is really bright. You're having to use muscles you haven't used before. Your knee is hurting a little bit. You realize you kind of smell because now you're out in the open air and you notice a stench that you didn't notice before. Um, You realize like your arm is hurting. And Christ says, keep walking in this direction because as you keep walking, we're going to heal stuff. As you keep walking, as we keep getting closer and closer to God, and this is the Christian idea of sanctification, that we, the longer we spend in the presence of God, it's like a spiritual suntan. The more time we spend in the presence of God, it changes us. And so the things that we used to smell like start falling off, the things that we used to do start falling off, and uh, as we draw closer and closer to God. But I'm distractible, right? And so there are times when I, I say, oh my God this is so hard. I could just lay down back there. I didn't have to move these muscles. Um, I didn't have to work so hard. It's, this, is, this is difficult. And, uh, and so I turn around and I, and I grab something that was previously behind me and I, turn, and I turn around, right? But you can only face one direction. So when you, when you turn back around to this former life, and this is what Ephesians talks about, when you, when you come back to this former life, uh, you know, you touch something that smells like death and you realize it hurts you. It's, it's, it's not... It's not good for you. That's why, that's why you're coming away from it. And uh, you say, oh, I've, I've sinned. God, I've sinned. I've, 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 uh, I've messed you. Where are you, God? Where are you? I, I, you've, you've hidden your face from me. I'm, I'm so wretched. And God says, you are living on a road called forgiveness. You've already passed over from death to life. Your response now is repent, which literally means to turn around and to keep on walking back towards in this direction. And so the Christian life is summed up of, of, uh, of us moving closer and closer to God in repentance, in a state of forgiveness. So uh, when I was a kid, I used to think uh, that, when I, that when I sinned, I was here and there was a barrier between me and God. And I'd say, oh God, I need to remove this barrier between me and you. And he says, your, response, your call is, there is no barrier. I've, I've destroyed the only barrier that was between God and man. You just keep turning around and getting distracted with stuff that was behind you. Turn around, repent, and keep walking in this direction. So the reason I want to share this is that Ephesians is a book for the journey. Ephesians is a book that was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus for this journey, this process of continuing to walk in this direction and to keep on laying things down that were before and picking up new things that are here, to, to, to laying aside the dead behind us and clinging to the life in front of us. So um, moving on. So we're going to go quickly through Ephesians. So um, I, uh, can we go back one? Oh, sorry, I know this one. I want to start with a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I would say it's my favorite quote, but I say that so frequently, my friends are starting to disbelieve me. Um, I'm just going to say it's a C.S. Lewis quote, and you judge whether or not it's my favorite. Um, So he said, um, when a layman has to preach a sermon, I think he is most likely to be useful or even interesting if he starts exactly where he is himself, not so much presuming to instruct as comparing notes. And so that's what I want to do. I want to stand right next to you and both of us face Christ and say, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he amazing? Let's keep walking in this direction. There is so much here. Let's keep walking in this direction of Christ. All right, so really quickly, I want to go through Ephesians uh, 1 through 5. Ephesians 1 starts out with this incredible passage focusing our attention on the goal of this journey. He says that uh, he blessed us, he chose us, he set us apart. Um, he uh, forgave us, he loves us, he redeems us. He, it's this really extended passage. It says, on this journey, 
the most interesting thing is not behind you. The most interesting thing is in this direction. It is this progress, it is this movement that we need to keep drawing towards. And he resets our frame of mind and says, focus on the goal. The goal is knowing him more because he has done everything. Ephesians 2, he says, you were dead, but God made us alive. That was his death and he made us alive again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That resurrection power that broke the barrier of sin, it lives in us. It's something that is continually putting aside the death and raising the life inside us. In Ephesians 3, in verse 6, he says, The mystery is that through this gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He says, on this path that you're walking down, look around you, because there's other people. There are other people walking around, and they don't look like you, and they don't talk like you, and they don't sound like you. They are very, very different from you are, uh, from you but we are all on this journey together. So Jews, Gentiles, it does not matter. Everyone is on this road together. Everyone is on this journey together. In Ephesians 4, verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. In other words, care for each other while you're on the road and stop turning around and touching dead things. Keep turning around and moving in this direction. Being this uh, this, uh, humility and gentleness, um, he says, Stop. I've, I've torn down this barrier. Stop picking up the rubble and trying to build little barriers between you and others. If you've crossed over this impenetrable barrier, stop trying to set up little ones between you and other people. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, um, verse 3 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's people. Um, if you went over to someone's house and instead of a Yankee candle burning as soon as you walked in and it smelled really nice, there was a dead raccoon in the middle of the living room, it would feel improper. Um, what Paul is saying is that think, people that are alive have no business smelling like death. And let me tell you what things like, of death smells like. It smells like impurity. It smells like sexual immorality. It smells like pride. It smells like lust. All of these things are leftover pieces of the grave that you keep trying to take with you, and people that are alive should not smell like the grave. And so put them off. Uh, Christ is this fragrant offering. Put on that scent and keep walking in this direction. In uh, verse 21 of Ephesians 5, it says, Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. And uh, Frank did a really good job last week talking about wives and husbands and what that submission and, um, and uh, care and love looks like in that relationship. And uh, the tail end of Ephesians 5 actually transitions really well into the first part of Ephesians 6 because Paul is very interested in normal relationships, in how the gospel that changed the cosmos affects your Tuesday morning with your spouse or your mom or your employer, right? And so he starts out saying uh, wives and husbands, and he transitions into uh, children and parents and then slaves and masters. So moving into Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This, uh, almost my entire life, this verse was understood for me in the context as a child. Looking at my parents and saying, my responsibility is to honor and respect. My parents are here, by the way, over there in the corner. Um, and, uh, and that was how I understood the verse. Nine months ago, that changed. Um, I have a, a little son and then another one on the way. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's changed my perspective in in the sense that 
I used to think that the goal of this was me, that I need to break myself down and become submissive, become obedient to my parents because it's good for me, I guess. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, barring sin, barring abuse, the instructions your parents give are for your good, just like the instructions that God gives us are for our good. And it's my hope and my prayer, and we pray with Sam every night, that he will be someone who has a humble heart, quick to obey, and have a love for others. Um, and so the things that I instruct my son are to further that end goal. They are to, to make sure that he, he is someone that has um, a respect for the father that we both ultimately report to and has a love for the people that are around him. If you're a, actually, I kind of want to talk to the college students for a second. If, you are a, if you're a college student in the room and you're in this weird stage, you're not living with your parents, you're not quite out in your own, you're like in a dorm room, you know, this, this kind of middle stage between, you know, does this apply to me? I'm not sure. Maybe, but the wives and husbands doesn't apply. Maybe the slaves and masters one. Um, I just want to encourage you, lean in and pay attention because lessons that are missed with your parents will be learned later, but the stakes are higher. When you're a kid and you, and you um, struggle with obeying your parents, or you struggle with uh, discipline or obedience, and, and you don't learn the lesson through that season, it makes the next seasons harder because you don't have the tools to be able to, to keep on moving through. Um, and the stakes do get higher. Marriages are at stake, jobs are at stake, relationships are at stake, even beyond whether or not you're grounded. Um, and anytime a topic like obedience comes up, Frank mentioned this with wives and husbands, um, there is a, there's a tendency to go to extremes in order to excuse the rule. And so I've, I've heard, oh, children obey your parents. What if my parents tell me to murder someone, right? Should I obey them then? No. Are your parents telling you to murder someone? Talk to me after. I'd be glad to hear that story. Um, <laughs> in reality, what happens is that uh, when people say, when people look for extreme excuses, it's because their parents are not telling them to murder someone. It's because their parents are telling them to be home by nine when all their friends get to be home by 10. Um, and so most of the time, it's a flack distraction from the, from the actual true heart. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's a few key lessons that I, that I pulled out from here that I feel like God's put on my heart. The first one is that it is, even if your parents are being unfair, assume for a minute they're being completely unjust, it is better to learn how to graciously bear up under injustice than it is to cultivate a heart of disobedience and disrespect. Um, because more times in your life, there will be injustice and there will be things that are not fair and there will be things that are difficult. And it is better to have the kind of heart and the kind of spirit that um, is able to graciously bear up underneath that than it is to buck any kind of authority that tries to get put over you. The reality is that you are always growing something inside your heart. There's always something being planted and growing and maturing and being harvested. That's why so much of the New Testament is agricultural metaphors because we operate very similarly. We plant things in our heart, we grow them. And it is better to plant respect for authority in your heart and let that grow to maturity in, responsible, in, a, in a responsible way than it is to plant disobedience and disrespect because the fruit of that is, is, un, is inedible. And the hardest truth is that if you can't learn how to come under authority, then you will never be fit to lead. Um, if you've never worked for an employer that misuses authority, um, I'm happy for you. It's a very hard place to be in. 
Um, and then if you have conversely worked under someone who understands what it is to be under authority and also to be in authority, the difference is night and day. They do not wield authority in the same way. They wield it very humbly, very maturely. Um, and the reality is, is they are only good leaders because they have learned how to be a good follower. They've learned how to obey and become, um, become obedient. In Matthew 8, um, Jesus tells a story, or Matthew tells a story of the centurion coming to Jesus. And the centurion says, um, come to my house, heal my servant. And uh, oh, my servant is sick. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come, I'll come and heal him. And he says, don't bother. I'm a man in authority. And I understand that when I tell someone to go, they do it. And I recognize that you are a man also under authority and also in authority. So you can just say the word. And I know that, I know that, you'll, it, that, that who you are in authority over, it's as good as done by you. And Jesus said he had not found faith like that in all of Israel, in a Roman centurion who was occupying the nation of Israel at the time. And then the best example of this is Christ. He was there when the earth was spoken into existence, and he still came under the submission of his father and laid his life down to death. And honestly, Christ laying his life down, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. But it was right, and he understood. Um, yeah. Moving on to uh, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, there are likely many people here that are more qualified to speak about fatherhood and, and children and raising kids and all of that. My experience is, is nine months old. But I will tell you, in the, in the early days of this, it has been, um, it's been eye-opening. I, have, I love being a dad. It is my favorite. It is my favorite. Um, and, uh, and I will tell you, there, there's nothing that I would do to Sam that would just for the sake of making him run around in circles. On this road metaphor, this would be you going along and having your kids just like run around in circles or say any direction's fine or it doesn't matter, like go this direction, that Like they're gonna get tired out and they're not gonna progress. Progress, training and instruction of the Lord is teaching them how to walk toward God, how to spend more time with God, how to fall more in love with God. And, uh, and it's exhausting to, be, to have anything else done. As uh, fathers, we are primarily responsible for the spiritual development of our kids and the spiritual tone of our households. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a new mantle for me, but it's one that's, um, it's one that's been very heavily felt. Um, my kids, Sam's spiritual development, Sam's spiritual walk is not something I can outsource to my wife and say, ah, oh, she'll take care of it. She's, the, she's more spiritual. Or to my pastor, or to YouTube, or to anything. Um, the word for fathers here can mean parents, but I like that parents are the ones, that fathers are the ones being called to the mat. Um, the second really hard truth that I feel God laid on me is that being a father is not about me. Um, it is not about my ego. It's not about my name. It's not about my respect. And it's not about my legacy. Um, having a kid is making disciples the slow way. It is, um, it's training and instructing and uh, leading him into, into maturity. And so it's fulfilling the Great Commission, just a little bit slower than, um, than evangelism. And the third one is that we're going to be held accountable for everything that God's given us and how we steward it, and that includes our kids. Um, I, think, I think fathers are going to be held accountable for how they've stewarded their families and... Uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a heavy charge, that being a father has gravity to it, um, that being, 
being a disciple and a discipler has gravity to it, that there's more at stake in your family than just your family, that the, uh, that the stakes are much higher. Slaves and masters. Uh, moving on to verse 5. So slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul is really concerned with everyday um, relationships, uh, with who you interact with and how the gospel plays out on a normal weekly rhythm routine. He actually repeats the same, um, he repeats this same uh, series of instructions in 1 Timothy and Colossians, and Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 2.18, where he says, Slaves, in reverent fear to God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And when, when Paul says slaves, I do want you to hear employees. Outside of this bondage that we were in, there was bondage, and now we're standing in freedom. We are no longer slaves of fear, just like we were singing this morning. There is no longer bondage to fear, but there are still earthly obligations. And so what he's saying is within these earthly obligations, there's more at stake than just your job. There's more at stake than just your parents. There's more at stake than just your marriage. The kingdom can be built or torn down in how you show up to work on Monday. That you have the ability to build up the kingdom in how diligently and how thoroughly and how carefully and how responsibly you show up to work on Monday. Um... And so when he does say slaves, I do want you to hear employees to obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Really quickly, I want to touch on slavery as a biblical and in the biblical time period. Um, and if this sounds a little bit like Andrew Roberts, that's because that's where I got it from. Um, so uh, there's three types of slavery. The first one was chattel. Um, this is uh, often prisoners of war for rowing ships, gladiators, sex trafficking. There was virtually no chance of freedom here. You were property. This, this is most like what we understand slavery as in the American South, uh, chattel slavery, that there was no accountability that, that, um, that you were merely property. The second one is agricultural army slaves who were often indentured or purchased from poor life choices. Um, rather than let your family starve, you could indenture yourself into slavery um, instead. You did have some limited freedoms with that slavery, and you had some chance of earning your freedom back. This is kind of the medium. And then urban slaves were often educated, intelligent, administrators to city families. They were allowed to marry, have children. They had a much higher chance of earning freedom. If you passed them on the street, you wouldn't know a, a, an urban slave from a free person. There's, there's a lot of responsibility given. Uh, but the levels of slavery, the conditions of slavery, uh, like Peter says in, in, uh, in First Peter, whether they're harsh or whether they... Um, or whether they're simple, whether you're a contractor or whether you're an employee or whether you're an intern or whether, it like, doesn't matter what level of relationship you have with your employer, your responsibility is to plant the gospel anywhere you go. And you go to work a lot. And so plant the gospel there. Um, I think of the story of Joseph, that he was a man who was sold into slavery by his brothers, um, transported to a different country, had to learn another language, uh, was put into someone's household, and rather than say, this is not fair, I need to gain my freedom, I need to run away, he said, I'm going to diligently work because this is where God's put me. I'm going to diligently apply myself wherever God has put me. If this is a serving job, if this is right out of college job, if this is, it doesn't matter what it is. Wherever God has put you right now, plant, grow. 
um, yeah, diligently apply yourself. Um, even in that household, he was lied about, put back into prison, rose to be the second highest in the prison, was forgotten about for years on end, and then was finally released to become the second most powerful man in likely the most powerful, most powerful country in the entire world. And it was not just for his own glory, it was for the salvation of an entire nation of Israel through the famine that occurred. And so my encouragement to you is, when you show up to work tomorrow, show up wholeheartedly, show up with all of you. Apply yourself because there's more at stake than just your job. Moving on to uh, verse nine. And masters, employers, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that, uh, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Similarly with fathers, how you steward what God's given you, the authority he's given you, will be called into account. And so if you're someone who has, even if you're a shift supervisor at Starbucks, it doesn't matter. If you have any amount of authority at your work, steward it well. Pray for your employees. Pray for your employer. Pray for the success of the company you're working at because you are there diligently working there. Um, treat your employees fairly and honestly. They're not disposable resources. Um, and uh, man, man puts a higher value on those in authority. We naturally do. If you have more authority, if you have more power, if you're the senior vice president of such and such, we assign more respect and more value. God does not. The only thing, there is God and there is man. And God does not see different levels of man. He sees, he sees his kids. And so um, don't, don't ever fall into the assumption that the respect or the sway or the power or the pull that you have at your job moves any kind of ticker with God. The only, thing that, the only thing that matters is how much time you spend with him, how close you are going, and how you treat the people that are around you. And you can do that as a garbage man. You can do that as a CEO. Um, so I, I just encourage you, don't get, don't get bought into the idea that there is some corporate ladder with God. There is mankind, and man will stand or fall on what they have trusted Christ to do and how they're stewarding what God's given them. If you are an employee here, I encourage you, pray for your company. Pray for your supervisors, pray for your coworkers. Um, uh, I can't remember who said it, uh, but there was a quote that we uh, heard in LDP where he said, um, uh, prayer, is not, prayer does not prepare us for the higher work, prayer is the higher work. That, that the kingdom is built and moved and shaken by prayer. Um, moving on to the armor of God. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The first thing I feel like God put on my heart in this area is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, which means you have never met an enemy in your life. Our only enemy is the spiritual realm. Our only enemy, the only thing that we fight against is, is in the spiritual realm. Never confuse a hostage for the enemy. That there are people around you who are hurt and who are bleeding and who are held captive 
And our response is never to treat them like the enemy. Our response is always to seek for their liberation and to seek for their, their freedom and to call them into it. Um, if they breathe air, they're not your enemy. From the outside, our side of spiritual warfare, our response in spiritual warfare can look very, very different than what you might imagine. It can look quieter, it can look stronger, it can look um, completely different than you may think it looks like. When I was 14, 13, 12, we visited a nursing home almost every week, and there was a woman that we met there who was paralyzed uh, in her arms and her legs. She was hit by a drunk driver, I think 20 plus years previously, and uh, she had lost the complete use of her body. She was sitting in a nursing home. It smelled like urine. Um, and she told us one day that the man who hit her has never once come to visit her in a nursing home, uh, that when he hit her, she was in a, a bank on the side of the road. It was raining, and she landed in an ant bed. She was completely paralyzed. It took the medics hours to get there, and she was lying there being, eat, being, being bitten by ants. And by the time they got there and got to the hospital, she had lost the use of her arms and her legs because he had driven off. And she said that she prayed for him every day, that she would have the joy of being able to see him in the kingdom of heaven so that she can go to him and tell him, I have forgiven you this entire, this entire time. And that was her greatest joy. That's what she wanted. Was she was afraid that he was living with guilt and fear and hiding from God, and she wanted, to, she wanted him to know that she had completely forgiven him and that she was eager to see him in the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual warfare can be quiet. It can be like this woman was lying in her bed. She couldn't do anything, but she could do a lot. And anytime, anytime I start to get frustrated or feel like I have cause to feel unforgiveness towards someone else, um, that story kind of haunts me. And I say, I have nothing. There is no little barrier that I can put between me and anybody else. Um, and the last piece is that that ability, the ability to be able to forgive, it's something that we only get from God. The world does not understand forgiveness because it does not make sense. It only makes sense in the context of the gospel, that I am a man who has already been completely forgiven, that I've crossed over from death into life, and so how can I create little deaths between me and anybody else? It only makes sense in terms of the gospel. And we only get that from God. This armor that we put on from God, he is the origin. He is the source. And so the closer you get to him, the more, the more effective it is. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. First thing I want to share with you today is that you will be attacked on this road. You are out of death from life, but as you're walking this road, you're going to be attacked. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So what you can control is how prepared you are for that attack. I don't think it's coincidental that the first piece that Paul mentions is the belt of truth. The first lie in all of humanity was from Satan. His first attack on, on mankind was a lie. Has God really said? 
And I think that is always his first attack. I think he constantly attacks us first with a lie. And so your ability to be equipped and ready with truth wrapped around your core is vitally important. We had a friend who uh, anytime she felt like she would get lied to by Satan, she would just kind of do an audit and say, what are these lies that I'm hearing from Satan? She'd take a postcard and she'd write down, you are not good enough. And she'd flip it over and she'd write a Bible verse on the other side that said, you know, your value is not in, it's not in you. Your value, you've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so for every lie that Satan gave, there was a truth to meet it with. And so the next time that lie came in, she was able to meet it with an answer. I think that's what wrapping yourself with a belt of truth looks like. Um, the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is right standing before God. Righteousness is our ability to say, I am in correct standing with God. There is, there is nothing between me and God. I can stand up and say, I'm here. And you don't get that on this side of the barrier. And on this side, you only get it if you say, Christ, the only reason I'm here is because of what Christ did. He is the righteousness. He is the righteousness that I put on. And you, and you wrap that around your chest and you say, the only reason I can stand here in humility is because Christ has already done the work, that he is the reason I'm able to be in right standing with God. Shoes of the gospel of peace, fitted with readiness. These, uh, these shoes, uh, they weren't just normal shoes that go around your feet. They, uh, a lot of times they were made out of bronze and they wrapped up all the way up to your shins. And uh, the reason is that as you're walking along the road, and this is obviously all these very military um, analogies, as armies would be walking toward their enemy, they just rows and rows and rows of soldiers, the enemy would often seed the ground with traps um, and uh, to, to puncture their feet. Because if you can't walk, you can't be part of the army. It was, a, it was the simplest way to get their numbers down before they got to the road, because they actually got to the battlefield. And uh, one of these things is called a uh, caltrop. And uh, they would, can you go to the next slide? Um, it looked like, one more, one more, that. So this is a Roman caltrop. So they would, they would throw them around the ground and they would puncture their feet. Um, and, uh, and so what he's saying is, you need to be prepared to not be put out of commission. Think ahead. On this, on this road, there's going, to be, um, there's going to be traps. There are going to be things that are out to get you and you need to be ready. Um, and this these shoes, the gospel of peace, I think it's incredible that, that it's a gospel of peace, that there is so much war analogy, but that the point is that wherever Christians are, there's peace. In the spiritual realm, in the relationships that you have, that, that you, when you are entered into the equation, you bring Christ, and Christ in that situation brings peace, not chaos. That it frees prisoners, it doesn't kill them. That it forgives, it doesn't build up barriers. Shield of faith. Um, this is the faith. The faith is what crossed over from death to life, right? So the faith is the belief in things not seen. It's you in a prison in the darkness saying, if I walk through that door, if I walk through that hole in the wall that Christ made, I'll be free. And all I need to do is just take his invitation to walk out. That same faith that brought you from death to life, that same faith in Christ, it's our shield, it's the thing that's going to keep on protecting us through the entire road trip. Um, when I was a kid, I was always confused by the teaching of Jesus where he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, 
move and it'll be cast into the sea. And I used to think he was talking about a mustard seed in terms of size. And he was saying, if you have even the littlest bit amount of faith, you can do anything. And I'd say, I feel like I've got a mustard seed amount of faith, but nothing like that's ever happened before. But there's a reason he said a mustard seed and not a speck of dust or, a, uh, or not, um, not just some tiny, tiny particle or something. He wasn't talking about quantity. Faith, even the smallest amount of faith, when properly planted and put into practice, grows into something far stronger than you would have ever conceived. That the tiniest seed can grow into the biggest tree, that's faith. That the smallest amount of obedience, the smallest amount of faith, when planted, grows. And that's, that's the remarkable thing. And so this, this faith that we carry with us, it starts out really small. But as we keep on walking, God keeps on nurturing, we keep on planting, we keep on growing, and it keeps on getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so I just encourage you, keep, on, keep planting that faith. Helmet of salvation. This is actually a, a reference back to Isaiah 59, verses 16 and 17. And I'm just going to go ahead and read them. Uh, in Isaiah 59, it says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there, would be, that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. The most valuable thing is that we have crossed over from death to life. That everything about the spiritual walk only makes sense in context of the gospel, and that's our salvation. It protects our head. It's, it's the top. It's the capstone. It is the most important. But it only happened because he did it first. That he said, there was nobody here to save anybody, and so I'll do it. And so his invitation is, I put on this helmet of salvation. I came and I saved you, and I'm going to give it to you and you need to keep on walking. Now that you're free, keep walking. Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly, this is the only offensive weapon in the entire armor of God. And if you've never met an enemy in your entire life, and if your enemy breathes air, they're not your enemy, then the word of God is never meant to be used against a person. It's never meant to be used as an offensive weapon to hurt someone or to cut someone. The only reason, the only way that it's meant to be used is to free people from lies. And so if, I've seen it done a lot, and it's ugly. And I'm, I'm just, I'm begging you as a brother to not do that. Um, the word of God is meant to free people. It's meant to bring peace. And if someone is in bondage, use the word of God to destroy the destroy the chains and not the person. They are the goal. Early on in our marriage, um, Carolyn and I put language in how we would have intense fellowship, um, which for those who are not married, it's called fighting, um, uh, where we would never, early on it was, it was a piece of language where we said, this issue, me being right about this issue is not the point. It's not the goal. You are the goal. And this thing we're disagreeing about is keeping me from you. There's something between us, but me being right about it is not the point. 
Um, you are the point. You are the goal that I'm trying to get to, and this thing is stopping it. So use the sword of the Spirit. Use the Word of God to destroy the things that are keeping you from other people, not other people. Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. This is the final piece. It's communication. It's stay in constant communication with your commander. In military language, with your commander. Um, that prayer is, is that vitally important with, um, on this walk. You can't just suit up and then wander wherever you want. That he's calling you somewhere. He's calling you to do things. Verse 19, pray also with, for me that whatever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I love this just because he's, he's transitioning from all of this instruction to an appeal as a brother. He's saying, I'm on this road with you. It's not just me somewhere else and you all are struggling through this. We're doing this together. Um, and uh, verse 21, Tychicus, my dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may, all, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to all the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. There's this mutual investment between Paul and the people he's writing to. He's saying, please pray for me. I earnestly pray for you. We're on this road together. Um, Final encouragement to you would be this week, this afternoon, read through Ephesians 1 through 6 again. We've gone through it already. Just sit down and read through it. Look for those directional, spatial understandings of the gospel. Um, and, and be encouraged knowing that we are all, we're all doing this together. Um, if, you, if you're in a position where you haven't crossed over, if you're still over here, I would encourage you, the door is open. Walk through. There is nothing stopping you from walking through. And once you're on this other side, you realize that there is a room full of people here that are really eager to do it with you really eager to walk this road with you and see what it looks like to continue to fall in love with God even more. That's my final, that's my final encouragement to you. I'll pray and then we'll, and then uh, Larry will come up. Father, I'm, I'm just blown away that you saw fit to come into the grave after us, that you spoke the universe into existence and that you spoke life into my life. Um, I, uh, it's, it is a humbling thing to stand knowing that we stand through no merit of our own, but only through the work that you've already done. And I ask that that would, uh, that that would continue to be on our hearts this Sabbath and, uh, and through this week, that we would know that in our normal relationships, there is more at stake than just the relationship, that the kingdom is built through ordinary moments like that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.